So if you would take your Bibles this morning, and please turn to Philippians chapter 2. Yes, we've made it through chapter 1. So here we are, chapter 2. And I'm telling you, I, I was almost disappointed that, that, it sounds so weird, but so disappointed that I've got to speak on Philippians 2 this morning because I know that in an hour we'll be, I'll be done speaking on Philippians 2. That's not weird. Because I love Philippians 2, the first four verses. So I felt saddened that I, that I would speak on Philippians 2, 1 through 4 this morning because I, I feel like we could reference this every single week. And by God's grace, we will go back to this passage regularly. Philippians chapter 2. On this, if, you're, if you're visiting with us again this morning, I want to say thank you for being here. Welcome. We're on this journey through Philippians. Um, we've, uh, we've, saw, we've seen some really neat things. If you turn your handout over, you can see this on the back. You'll see kind of this, uh, this journey where we've been, this journey of review. Next to Philippians chapter 1, you'll see the theme of a gospel-centered life. Well, that's what we've been talking about. I think what summarizes this is verse 27 of chapter 1. If you just listen as I read this, because this transitions us into chapter 2 so beautifully. Verse 27 of chapter 1 says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. That's what we talked about last week. In other words, live as a worthy citizen of the gospel. Let the product match the claim. We have participated in the gospel of Jesus Christ and salvation. Now live out the gospel every day of our lives. And how is this going to be seen? We now transition into the themes of chapter 2. Which, by the way, if you remember um, what we referenced last week, that Bible you hold on your lap has chapters and verses. Uh, Paul did not, if we remember this, Paul did not write in chapters and verses. He wrote in paragraphs and sentences and phrases. These weren't added into our Bibles until, you know, later on, like the 16th century. So for years and years, we had... People reading the Bible based on thoughts and concepts, based on themes. So when we reference this passage today, we're transitioning from one theme right into another theme. So this theme of gospel-centered life now transitions into a very practical part of the New Testament church. And what is that? Unity. We talked of this last week. Here it is in the last part of verse 27. So that whether I come and see you or absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So that has been on my mind all week. I don't know about you, but those pictures of those Roman shoulders standing next to each other, standing firm for the faith of the gospel, even in their little turtle structure. I don't know. Did anybody think of that this week? Standing side by side for the faith of the gospel. We're in this together. Now we take that concept of gospel-centered life and transition it into this concept of absolute unity in the body of Christ. So I hope you're ready for this. I think in our minds, I think, okay, great, Paul. Standing side by side for the faith of the gospel. Well, How? I'm one of those guys that loves to know how. How's that going to work? 
You've noticed that the, at the end of every single sermon we go to, it's, so what? How am I going to work on this this week? What's the application? Well, in my mind, I read through verse 27 through 30 of Philippians 1, and I'm like, great, but Paul, how? How am I going to stand side by side for the faith of the gospel with the body of Cross Point Community Church, this church? Well, I believe chapter 2 dynamically answers the how of the passage. How do we do this? How do we exist in unity? And as we exist in unity, though, we're going to find that Paul starts by talking about some massive hurdles, particularly one hurdle, some massive hurdles to this unity. And we're going to start in chapter 2, verse 1, in just a minute, talking about that. But before we even get to that, let's make it practical. I'm going to try to stay a little bit away from the history lesson today, although history is a big part of one word here. Anybody recognize this acronym, NPD? And automatically our minds go to uh, the PD, police department. It's not police department. This is a medical term. Anybody understand this, recognize this? Let me fill in the blanks. There it is right there. Narcissistic personality disorder. It's a real thing, they say, right? And, and um, I need to be very cautious about how I walk into this today. Because it, I want to be very clear that I am not a healthcare professional. I'm not a medical doctor. Um, I don't claim to be. Uh, but I also, God gave me a brain to think. I am a, a natural observer, and I try to run everything through the grid of strip, Scripture. So I'm a biblical, logical thinker. I try to be anyways. Some of the conclusions I come to sometimes just like, what was that? But I try to think naturally through these things, try to think biblically through these things, so I am not claiming to be a medical professional in any way. But when I read about this, sometimes I just shake my head, and I think, oh, my soul. Where are we going with this? Um, I did a bit of that head shaking today, or this week, because when we see this narcissistic personality disorder based on the history of it, actually I was just talking up there a little bit with Angela about this, uh, narcissists, and in Greek mythology, a dude that was in love with himself, do you remember this at all? He looks into the, into the water to see his own reflection, do you remember this? All right. That's where we get the concept of narcissism. This narcissism, which, I mean, I, I was curious about this this week. You find it in the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, 5th edition. It's a, it is claimed as a disorder that affects 1% of diagnosed Americans. So one in every 100 people, according to the statistics, struggle with this. I don't want to completely undermine that in any way. Please understand that. But I want to say, I don't think it's 1%. I think it's 100% of people struggle with that first word up there. So we're going to start off thinking on that. Because I just want to read what this is talking about. The diagnostics, and actually Mayo Clinic has a very clear description of what narcissistic personality disorder is. It is this. It is a mental condition in which people have an inflated sense of their own importance. I'm like, oh man, that's not like one in a hundred. That's like every one of us. 
We, we honestly struggle with thinking we're all that. I mean, when we think of narcissistic personality disorder, it is that we, we especially in our selfie culture, right? Everything is about a selfie, and it resolves, revolves around that. And I was thinking about that this week, thinking, based on what happened in the garden with Adam, who thought he was all of that, tempted by Satan, who thought he was all of that, Narcissism and the temptation for self-importance is a temptation for every single one of us, not just 1% of our population. I mean, I read some more about what it is. It's, it's a deep need for excessive attention and admiration. It's a, a lack of empathy for others. Oh man, that's me every day. But behind this mask of extreme confidence lies a fragile self-esteem that's vulnerable to the slightest criticisms. Yes, that's who we are. Narcissistic personality disorder comes, or disorder causes problems in many areas of life. Okay, I kind of wanted to, I like highlighting and putting different things in there. I almost wanted to put a little wedge in there and put Philippians 2 over the top of it. Because that's where we're at today. Such as relationships, work, school, financial affairs. People with narcissistic personality disorder may be generally unhappy and disappointed when they're not given the special favors and admiration, admiration they believe they deserve. Yes. They may find their relationships unfulfilling and others may not enjoy being around them. Yes. That is in the body of Christ all over the place. We struggle with this in our home all the time. And so where, where I'm going at with this is I don't want to discount the medical studies, but I want to say this, that from the onset, we're talking about the Garden of Eden with Adam. This is something that every single human being will struggle with. Let me read some more about it. Here's, uh, oh, by the way, here's the treatment for the narcissistic personality disorder. Talk therapy. I understand that to a certain extent, but I'm going to tell you, as soon as we start talking, who are we going to talk about? Our own selves. I would say, let's, let's like advance that just a little bit. Rather than talking about ourselves so much, let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about the miracle of the cross. Let's talk about what Jesus is doing in our body of Christ. Okay, continue on with some varying symptoms. And as I read the symptoms for NPD, would you not in your mind think about some of the things we struggle with in the body of Christ all the time? Okay, if not in the body of Christ, in our very homes. If not in our homes, in my life every day. Here it is. Varying symptoms. People with this disorder can have an exaggerated sense of self-importance. Yes. Have a sense of entitlement. Yes. Expect to be recognized as a superior. Exaggerate achievements and talents. Oh, my soul. In any given conversation, we're tempted to exaggerate what we've done. Am I wrong here? Be preoccupied with fantasies about success, power, brilliance, and beauty. Believe we are superior and can only associate with equally special people. Monopolize conversations and belittle or look down on people they perceive as inferior. Expect special favors and unquestioning compliance with with their expectations. Take advantage of others to get what they want. Have an inability or unwillingness to recognize the needs and feelings of others. 
behave in an arrogant or haughty manner, haughty manner, coming across as conceited, boastful, and pretentious. Insist, here's one, insist on having the best of everything. I've got to have it my way. At the same time, people with narcissistic, narcissistic personality disorder have trouble handling anything they perceive as criticism. <clears throat> and they can become impatient or angry when they don't receive special treatment, react with rage or contempt, and try to belittle the other person to make themselves appear superior, have difficulty re regulating emotions and behavior. Okay, I'm not here to just try to badmouth this medical deal here, NPD. But what I'm saying is, we want to find something out about this, we can go directly to the book of Philippians. We can go directly to the scriptures and we can see all over this passage where people are drawn, and we've been drawn since the fall of Adam in the garden to think very, very, very highly of ourselves and our own accomplishments and who we are, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are tempted towards this type of thing. And, and, I, and I understand, some people might struggle more with this than others, but the flat fact is we are tempted to live this out every day. This comes across in the passage we're looking at today, so there's not, this isn't a medical lesson. <laughs> but it comes across. Can we see it? Paul, 2,000 years ago, realizes that the church is not immune to self-importance, struggling with this thought of self-importance. This self-importance is one of the biggest hurdles to unity in the body of Christ, and let's see how Paul acknowledges that in verses 1 through 4. Verse 1, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy Paul says, complete my joy, verse 2, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Here it is, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit, but in humility, some of your translations will say, lowliness of mind, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also on the interests of others. Brothers and sisters, what is this? This is Paul struggling, talking about one of the biggest hurdles to unity in the body of Christ. And what is that hurdle? An inflated view of self-importance. We think we're all that sometimes. So can we talk of that a little bit? I want you to know this. When I'm reading through the scripture... And I'm speaking here today is because I have purple toes from them being stepped on all week from the text. God is, God is refining my heart from this passage. So I'm not standing up here preaching at you. I'm talking with you about what God's doing in my very own heart. Please understand that. When I read a text like this, if one of the first things I want to do is fall on my knees and say, God, I am sorry for the persuasions of my own sinful heart 
Please refine my heart. So when we look at a passage like this today, let's see what it's saying very clearly from Paul. Let's unpack this realizing that this theme of unity, Paul right away talks about a hurdle. So let's talk more about this unity. You ready to hold on? Can we unpack this a little bit? First of all, here's the point that we'll be making today. A gospel-centered, or sorry, we must pursue unity by remembering the basis for this unity. So he's making an argument on unity, and he starts talking about this unity, starting with, what's the foundation for your unity? What is the foundation for the unity in the body of Christ? Well, verse 1, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Okay, what's Paul doing here? He's defining the foundation for our unity in the body of Christ. If we want to pursue unity in the body of Christ, we need to remember a couple things. And here's what we need to remember. So if there is, and he lists four things. A lot of people think this is very poetic, almost like a song that Paul writes as he's, as he's writing to the church of Philippi. I don't know you can make a huge case for that, but it is very structured, this section. He says, so, if there is any, and he lists four things. What about this so? I want to just go through and, 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 and really talk through this whole passage, even one word at a time if we can sometimes. So, what he's doing, and, and some of your translations will actually say, therefore. Why? He is tying this directly to what he just said about unity. Living a gospel-centered life. This unity. So, if there is if, um, I, think, I think we would, there's, there's Greek terms for this, first class condition, all this stuff, and it's not a Greek class, but I want us to understand this. There's, there's maybe a better word we could potentially use, and it would be the word since or because. The concept is this, since because of this, if as indeed is the case. So Paul's saying, because this has happened in your life, now we live a different way. So what has happened in our lives? We'll just start with the first one. If there's any encouragement in Christ. I love that word encouragement because it's actually the same word from which we get in John the description of the Holy Spirit of God, the helper, the paraclete. This is the word talking about what Jesus does now. It is comfort. It is consolation. You know what it does? I mean, if you can picture this with me as someone, and we've all been there. Someone that's just been so downtrodden from a week. They're struggling with life. Their head is about as low as it can get. Actually, I've done this uh, on different occasions, different ones. You actually put your finger on the, under the chin, more family related, and just kind of pick their head up. That's the comfort talked about in this passage. Their head's down. They are dejected. And now through Jesus Christ, our heads are lifted. That's this passage. And Paul says, what is the foundation of our, of our fellowship, of our unity? It is the fact that Jesus Christ himself came to us and picked up our heads. He encouraged us. What's the next foundation? Any comfort from love. This is the love of God Almighty. It is his agape love, his sacrificial love. This love is relief and support. Uh, so much could be said about this. I remember in college, Hannah and I, we didn't, so we didn't text because we didn't have cell phones, right? 
we actually had to go back to those little letters, and we, would, we had these mailbox system at our school, or I'd see her, and she'd hand me a little note, and I'd hand her a little note, and as we were engaged, and we're preparing for our wedding, I, mean, I loved what she had to say, but I would look for these three words, I love you. Oh, man, I could go for like three days on that. My wife loves me. Well, she was my fiance at the time. She loves me. This woman loves me. And this would, this would bring health to my relationship. And I think what Paul is saying here, I mean, we can find this through the epistles, that what Paul is saying here is what is the foundation for our unity? It is the comfort that we have from God's love. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God loves us. In the scriptures, we find this, I love you. And we hold on to that. What is the impetus for, the, for unity in the body of Christ? It is the fact that we have comfort from the love of God. Here's another one. Any participation in the spirit. You know what that word participation is? It's the same word from which we get fellowship. It is close communion. It is close relationship in the spirit. And I love this for many reasons. But one of them being that in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, we find a permanently indwelling Holy Spirit. This is a Holy Spirit that does not leak out of the bottom of our shoes. If you understand what I'm saying. He doesn't abandon us. When we come to Jesus Christ, He has us and He will never let us go, this comforter, this helper. He is with us all through the journey. This comforter, this Holy Spirit of God is the one that walks with us. So there's so much imagery here. Picking our heads up, finding the love. Now if you think of this participation with the Spirit, would you think with me of walking hand in hand with someone? Is the Holy Spirit of God that's with you in relationship. So brothers and sisters in Christ, back to the context. What is the foundation for unity in the body of Christ? You know what it is? That each one of us who've come to Christ by faith are walking hand in hand. Actually, it's much deeper than that. But the Holy Spirit of God is in our midst. The Holy Spirit of God, as Paul says in Galatians, is the one that's, he's the one in Galatians 5 that is producing this fruit called love in the body of Christ. So, any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. This is simply deep inner care and pity, compassion from God Almighty. That when God looked at us, we were first and foremost sinners in rebellion against God. But because of his mercy and grace, he's brought us into relationship through the cross. He brought us into unity with his holiness. So what is the foundation for our unity in the body of Christ? It is the pity that God showed on us. It is, it is the mercy that God has shown to us. So we need to move on or we'll be here till next week. But I want to just say this, a couple quick observations before we get into the next point. I think I've already advanced it, but a couple quick observations. This is clearly a description. Let's see if I can go back. Oh, we'll try this real quick. There it is right there. This right here is clearly a description of what? The glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, as we looked at in chapter one. Right here, this is the gospel. The good news that we have encouragement in Christ, comfort from God's love, participation or relationship with the Spirit. 
And we have been pitied by God himself. This is the gospel. Then another quick observation. What do we find in these verses? Do we find the involvement of the Holy Trinity? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the unity that happens in the body of Christ is not just something that happens because we're, uh, we're going to do it this week. We're going to be unified. It is the unity of the Holy Spirit, God the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. The Trinity is at work in the body of Christ bringing unity. We need to move on. So not only we must pursue unity by remembering the basis for the unity, second of all, there's a direct appeal. He doesn't hold back. Paul just comes right at us and says, here's what I expect. And how does he start? He starts with this phrase, complete my joy. Okay, so this is kind of interesting because Paul would write this way. Um, In the original language, this first phrase there, complete my joy, is the primary command of the whole verse. Like, what? It is the only imperative, actually, in in this verse. However, it would be like this. In my home, when my kids are kind of being a little crazy, there's a phrase I'll use, and here it is. Listen up. What, that's a command, right? Listen up. Well, I know if I say listen up, something else is coming. All right? That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, fulfill my joy. Hey, listen up. I mean, another way of saying this is simply this. I ask my kids sometimes, hey, what would make your dad more happy than anything else in the whole world? That's this phrase. Paul essentially looking at the church and he's writing this down through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he's like, hey, listen up, but what would make me more happy than anything in the whole world? To my kids, I tell them that they would love and obey God with their whole heart. I think of this passage that Paul's looking at this church, he's writing to this church and he says, complete my joy. And now in a very imperative framework, we find the commands, the structure of this passage. Here's the first one. Being of the same mind. Be of the same mind, church. This isn't very complicated, right? Think the same way. In harmony, have the same opinion about God, about each other, about the community, about what is really important in the body of Christ. This is not as much a, a reference to theology, I think, in this passage, as much as it is to practical life and ministry. Think the same way about each other. Think the same way about what God's doing in the body of Christ. By the way, I had someone talk to me this week in in the body, and they're like, boy, there must be something happening in the body with this unity. (laughs) I said, no, not that I know of anyways. I'm sure there is somewhere. I mean, you're talking a lot about unity. I'm going to tell you, that's the beauty of expository preaching, because you just go one text after another. So there's nothing on my mind as far as what's happening here. This is much more preventative if you look at it that way. We're talking about the expectations of the scripture. So when disunity does flare up its ugly head, we can run right back to Philippians chapter 2. Do you understand that? I hope we can all understand that. All right, think the same way. Not that we will be in agreement over every minor, minute detail of ministry, but that through the Holy Spirit of God, we'll be disciplined to work it out. We'll be disciplined to find some solutions. We'll be disciplined to not launch those missiles in the body of Christ that we're tempted to throw. 
to come to agreeable conclusions that reflect honesty and godliness. What's the simple point? The battle for unity starts, I, I think it's very clear in this. Where does the battle for unity in the body of Christ start? It starts with how we think. A changed heart that transforms how we think. And Paul clearly is saying this. If we want to be unified in the body of Christ, we better start thinking a certain way. We'd be of the same mind. The next thing he says is having the same love. Experience a love for the same person, Jesus. And the same things. And Jesus' things. This is what the body of Christ does. And actually a point that can be made, I believe, is that the same love is the love that God showed for us in verse 1. <laughs> we won't ferret that out very far this morning, but because God loves us, we are to show the same sacrificial love. What's the appeal? Brothers and sisters in Christ in Philippi, think the same way, have the same love, the love of Christ, the sacrificial love of Christ. Live it. Do it. And then he says this, be in full accord. This is the concept of being completely united with the same passion. Um, what comes to mind is a fine-tuned sports team. One of the commentaries that I have, you know, this, this quote from him is, individuals in Philippi's highly stratified honor culture were deeply embedded in patronage networks that operated across the social classes. An ambitious local aristocrat would expect support from his friends, clients, and persons in, an, in his extended household. Preoccupation with one's own social advantage naturally led, therefore, to factions and rivalry. And I'm like, yeah, that's such the case 2,000 years ago, uh, 2,000 years away too. Here, now, self-importance leading to factionism in the body of Christ. Honestly, you know what comes to mind? Um, this is, this is ridiculous. These illustrations, sorry, but just hear me out if you would. Last week I shared an illustration of our, our, our mare, Jules, a sweet horse. I've got the, we've got this other horse, this gelding. He's a little bigger than the mare and he's all that. He thinks he owns everything on the property. And so this, this whole, the whole goal in life for this gelding is to follow this mare around and, and agitate her the entire time. It's my water. And if she starts to drink first, he'll bite at her. It's my grass. He follows her around the whole property, commanding everything she does. Why? Because he's trying to prove how dominant he is. I'm going to say, that's, that's not all that unfamiliar with things we see in the body of Christ sometimes. Following each other around, trying to prove how important we are in our own minds. And Paul says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition and conceit. This conceit is a, per, a, a pursuit of supreme recognition. This word conceit, I already moved on, sorry. The word conceit, it means empty glory. The, the Greek word, you can, you can kind of cut the Greek word in half. It means empty glory. It's glory in myself, but there's nothing behind it. It's conceited. It's a personal chase for cheap glory, a vain and exaggerated self-evaluation, as one lexicon says. What's the point? Paul is saying, don't let your life be consumed. In fact, don't let this flare up in any way in the body of Christ, this self-ambition, this conceit, to think I'm all that. 
But what's the, what's the other side of it? Here we find it. Button humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. So as much as we want to get white out and kind of write over that verse, we can't. Because this is in the holy text of Scripture. That we are to prefer others, count them more significant than ourselves. To count means to closely regard, to take close, close count. Um, I'm going to keep moving. Uh, count them as more significant. This means superior in status. It actually says this. Consider these people around you as being superior in status than you. And this highly honor, uh, highly impacted honor system that we have here in, in this Roman uh, colony of Philippi, this honor system is constantly measuring people up. Paul's saying, hey, when you look around, look at other people as being more valuable than you. That really is what it comes down to. Understanding that the ground truly is level at the foot of the cross. That's clearly taught in the scriptures. But how do we think? We realize that God does not prefer one believer over another. We realize that. But for the, the case of unity, we're basically to consider others as being more valuable. They hold value. Um, the resolution to be subject one, uh, to subject oneself to others and to be more concerned about their welfare than one's own, as, as one writer says. We're more concerned. They're, we see them through the eyes of being more valuable than us. I'm going to tell you, that's hard. Not impossible. It is impossible without the working of the Holy Spirit of God as the basis. Now we transfer to from inner, I think the first part, chapter, or verse 3 is talking more about inner. Let's close out with more of an outward expression of this humility, following the plan of unity. How is this going to look? Let each of you look not on his own interests, but also on the interests of others. Let's fly through this. Let each of you look not only on his own interests. That word look means to attentively keep an eye out. So, um, this week I have the opportunity to go take my bow on a hike and do some uh, hunting in the Rocky Mountains. I'm going to take off. I'll be out there with my brother and a, another pastor friend for a couple days looking for some elk. So I just gave Jim and Mike and Mike a hard time for me and missing so they can give me a hard time next week. But I'm going to tell you, when you're archery hunting, every step counts. And what are you doing? You're constantly looking. You're constantly surveying. You're keeping an eye out for what's happening around you. One little misstep and there's a problem. Snap and then the whole herd runs off. You're watching diligently. And I think that same mentality comes into how we approach the body. He says this, let each of you look. Let each of you be attentive to keep an eye out for this. Don't be so consumed with looking out for areas of your interest. Don't fix your attention on your stuff. But do what? Attentively look at what's happening in the body of Christ. You remember this term we used a couple weeks ago, being filled aware? It's this person on the sports team that is so consumed with their own skill that they fail to see anything else develop on the field or court. Why? Because all they see is three feet in front of them. As a coach, I'd pull a guy aside and I'd be like, hey dude, you need to get your head up. 
You need to see the run 50 yards away on the soccer field. You need to watch him running into that space or in, in basketball. You need to see the cut. Stop being so consumed by all the, your sweet skills and realize there's other stuff happening on the quarter field. That's being field aware. And what's happening in this passage is Paul is saying, hey, don't be so consumed with your own stuff. Look about what's going on in the body of Christ. Be diligent to see what's happening in the body of Christ. Be field aware. Let each of you look not only in his own interest, but also on the interests of others. We are to, are to intentionally focus our attention on the interests of others, to put deep thought into people's interests other than just ours. Um, with so many different people we interact with during the week, so many interests and ministries and programs and studies, it's so easy to be consumed with our own slice of the pie. And to a certain extent, it's good to realize that your ministry, your participation is, is, is good. But what happens is we start to take our little slice of the pie and raise it to the top. Our own aspect of ministry and make it more important than any other aspect of the ministry. We start to take the hand and say the hand's more important than the foot. We start to take the foot and say the foot's so much more important than my elbow. Well, the only way it's going to work is as we see the usefulness of the entire body working together. Don't look on your own interests, but look on the interests of other people. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also on the interests of others. You know what verse comes to mind? I found myself referencing Romans 12 several times this week. Romans 12, chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse 10 says this, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. This is this passage. We outdo each other in showing honor to each other. In no way, please understand me very clearly, and we'll get to this when it comes to the middle of chapter 2. In no way does this mean excusing sin. That is not this passage. Or we just turn a blind eye to clear violations of Scripture. No. Ephesians says we speak the truth in love. We walk through this with each other. But what we're talking about here is this honor system that we have, this honor system that's set up in Philippi through the Romans, clearly taking time to prefer and honor others as being more important than me, being filled aware. So what's a key idea? It would have to be something like this. So kind of summarize verses one through four. And I want to say, there, there's so much more we could say about these things. And I would encourage you to take this home and just meditate on these verses for days and days on end. They're so rich. My mind goes to the body of Christ here and say, what would happen if we embrace this every day of ministry? What would happen if we embraced this thought with every relationship in our lives? To live the life of Christ with everyone we come into contact with. Can you imagine if there was a youth group that lived this every day of their lives? A young couples group, a family life group, an older couples group, an, a, a, an older group, Sunshiners group, King's Helpers group. If we lived this in the body of Christ, can you imagine every day? We must pursue sincere unity through sacrificial humility. What's the glue that's going to hold us together? It is sacrificial humility. It's the humility of Jesus Christ. I think if you take this within context, you'd have to say this. Because of the foundational gospel, we must pursue 
sincere unity through sacrificial humility. So what? There it is. Let's close it out. So what? I mean, I love this because God's Holy Spirit is possibly working in your heart right now, giving you some directives about how your life should be changed this week based on this text. That's the beauty of what God's Spirit does. He refines us. But I would say in a general sense, so what? Asking this question first. Because I just referenced the Holy Spirit of God working in our lives. The question is this. Has Christ changed your life? I want to be very clear on this, that it's impossible to live this kind of unity without a changed heart. Without first receiving the, the, the perfect worth of work of Jesus Christ in our lives. That, that's why verse 1 is in here. If you therefore, I mean, we went to this very clearly. If there is any encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy, it's impossible to live this without Jesus Christ changing you from the inside out. And so the question is this, have you come to Jesus? Have you called on him by faith and repentance? If you have not, would today be that day? Paul to the Philippian jailer that we reference every week, a man about to take his own life. Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The next question would come from this would be, am I pursuing sincere unity through sacrificial humi- humility? Okay, I wanted to make this personal. That's why I put the, you know, the I in there. Because how we're tempted to think is, boy, pastor, that was a really good sermon for the person sitting 10 rows away from me. Right? That was, that was a really good verse for that person that had that flare-up two months ago, or whatever the case. I want to tell you, what this passage is, is very personal. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, am I pursuing sincere unity through sacrificial humility? What are you doing by God's grace to pursue unity in the body of Christ through sacrificial humility? So God, that's the prayer of our hearts.